I want to share with you the story of the ten plagues. Now, this doesn't come from my NIV Bible. This comes from a children's Bible, as you can tell. But I was reminded of how concisely this story is told when I read it for, with my daughter Lucy yesterday. This is the story of the ten plagues. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh's palace, and they said, You must let the Israelites go free. If you do not, God will punish you. And Pharaoh said, No, I do not know your God. And he made the Israelites work even harder. God was not pleased. So he changed the main river to blood. Pharaoh did not care. I will never let the Israelites go, he said. Then God sent frogs to Egypt. They were sitting in chairs, hopping upstairs, and jumping all over the beds. Pharaoh said, take the frogs away, and I'll let your people go. So God took the frogs away. But guess what happened next? Pharaoh changed his mind. No. God sent more plagues on Egypt. First, there were pesky gnats. Is that number three? Are we counting? Then came the frenzy of flies. Next, all the animals got sick. Then the Egyptian skin broke out in sword. Damaging hailstorms came. And then swarms of locusts ate the crops. Then darkness covered everything. Sometimes Pharaoh said he would let the people go. But after God took away each plague, Pharaoh changed his mind and said, no. Moses had one last message from God for Pharaoh. If you do not let my people go, the firstborn son in each Egyptian family will die. Pharaoh refused to listen. So God kept his promise. Pharaoh finally said, go now. Dick, if you would go back to that previous slide. Uh, I want you to see this picture of Pharaoh. There he is now. He's not happy, but I think what really kind of, the image I want you to hold on to today is the image of Pharaoh surrounded by flies amidst the plagues. All these things are going wrong, and he is interacting with this God who can make things come and make things go and is proving that he's more powerful than the gods of Egypt. And Pharaoh is just sitting there with his arms folded. Maybe we don't get to see the picture, but you saw it earlier. And Pharaoh is stubbornly refusing to honor God. The reason that we're starting with this story from Exodus, which is the way opposite end of the Bible than Revelation, is because you're going to get this story again. John, in telling and revealing what is to come, you're, uh, he's going to show, hey, remember? This seems like something we did before. Do you remember the ten plagues? Do you remember Pharaoh? Do you remember what God did then? Well, that similar thing can happen. It's an allusion to a story that his audience would have been very familiar with. So hold on to that idea and the images that we saw on the screen. We're going to continue on in Revelation. Last week, we looked at a section about the seven seals. This was Easter Sunday, and they opened the scrolls, and the horsemen came out. Nod your head if you remember this. This is something we actually did. But you may have noticed this. Nobody said anything about this, but in a section called the seven seals, there were only six seals. Did anybody catch that and go home going like, ah, oh, he said there were going to be seven, but there were only six. Well, the reason for that is because you get the seventh seal opened in Revelation 8, and we were camped out in Revelation 6 and 7. So this is where we're going to pick things up. In Revelation 8, the seventh seal is opened, and there's going to be silence in heaven for about a half an hour. I want to do a little side teaching here. Remember earlier when we said that when you see a number in Revelation, it is typically uh, symbolic? It, it means what it means, but it also has a meaning that 
the audience would have understood. Remember the number seven is the number of perfection. The number 1,000 just means a great number that you can't really even count. Well, in the same way, the number half, like one half, and the number one-third, that has a meaning that we may not be familiar with. And the meaning there is it's not a literal one-third. Like we're going to see in chapters eight and nine, there's going to be a lot of the number one-third reference. That doesn't necessarily mean like I did the math and I counted the stars and a third of them were gone, I tell you. A third just means some but not all. And that can refer to a length of time, some time but not the whole time. And then it can refer to objects and items that you're counting as well. Some but not all. So when John says there was a silence in heaven for a half an hour. It's not like he was there with his Apple watch going like, yeah, man, 30 minutes exactly. It was silent before the throne of God. He just meant there was a time that it was silent. So here comes the, the text. Revelation 8, 1 through 5. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. That's pretty exciting. You had these seals opened, all this craziness happened. The lamb is, is uh, the, the faithful, rejoice in the slain lamb of God. And then, whew, silence. And God is hearing the prayers of the people. And they float up like the smoke from an incense burner before God. This, this is a beautiful image. And if you're ever thinking about prayer, if you ever just need some encouragement from Revelation, open up to Revelation chapter 8. Because you get this image of what happens to the prayers of the saints. And this is encouraging for me because sometimes when I pray, it feels like I'm, uh, I call Kaiser and they put me on hold. Or they said, hey, uh, you know, you're next in line, but uh, someone will be with you in three hours and 75 minutes. That's a long time. Sometimes we wonder if God is hearing our prayer. Sometimes we wonder if they make it past the ceiling of the room that we're praying in. Sometimes we evaluate our prayer experiences the way we evaluate a worship experience. Sometimes we say, ah, you know, that one was really great and powerful. And that one was, uh, it didn't really do anything for me. That one was too short. That one was too long. That one was confusing. Ah, I don't know about that one. But the good news that we see in this image that John gives for us is that our prayers, however big or small, however loud or quiet, however eloquent or bumbly, bumbly worded, arrive before the throne of God and they receive his attention. And whether or not we see it or notice it or realize it, the result is something that comes crashing back to earth with a powerful impact. So this is a good reminder for the saints who are praying and are still persecuted, who are struggling and not seeing change that they had been hoping for. Powerful prayer is happening in heaven. That's part of what's revealed to us. It may seem like this, but here's what's really going on before the throne of God. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in Brooklyn, New York. And I made sure that my flight arrived at a time where I could go to their famous Tuesday night prayer meeting. Other ministers that I talked to and other folks had said, man, this is the most 
powerful prayer meeting. You want to be there on Tuesday night. Well, what do they do? Well, they pray. Well, what else do they do? That's it. They pray, and you want to be there. I was like, okay. So I went, and I got there early, and I filed into my seat. It was in this big theater. There's probably, you know, 3,000 people there by the time it got started. And you know what they did? They did the same thing that we do. They prayed. And it was powerful, but not because it was the Brooklyn Tabernacle, not because I flew to New York, not because there were thousands of people in the room. It was powerful because it was this intentionally set-aside time for prayer. And we prayed. And so that's encouraging for people who are people of prayer, who just say, hey, we're going to carve out this time, and we're going to pray. And we're going to be confident that God is going to hear our prayers and that something is going to come from this. Powerful things happen when people carve out time to pray. In Acts chapter 4, you have the believers who just gotten reprimanded by the authorities. Don't talk about Jesus. And they're, they're hiding and they're scared and they're not sure what to do. And then they pray and the room shakes. And the Spirit of God fills them and they're, they're bold all of a sudden. They go, wow, okay, we know exactly what we're going to do. We're going to send this message into the world that Jesus is alive. And even if you go back to the beginning of Revelation, you have John. He, he, he gets the things that we're trying to understand in this study but when does this happen? It was on the Lord's day. It was while he was in the Spirit. John was praying. John was ready to receive a word from the Lord. And that's what he got. Powerful things happen when we make time to pray. I could talk about prayer, uh, but we're going to actually experience prayer in just a little bit. I'm going to do a lot more talking, so don't worry <laughs> about that. Uh, but at the end of our service today, where we normally make time for, to pray for one another, I'm going to just create space for us to lift up our prayers before the Lord, and they'll float before his throne like incense from the altar. And uh, so if you're excited about prayer and the opportunity to pray, you are going to get that in just a little bit. But we're going to move on and try to understand what Revelation 8 and 9 say. Revelation 8, chapter 6, then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets, remember them, they prepared to sound them. Okay, there's going to be some trumpets blowing. But before we get to that, I need to do a little bit more prepping us for what John is going to say and the images that we're going to see. Um, hopefully this will give us a better sense of how this message was heard by the seven churches that John sent this, these visions to, and it give us a better understanding of how we can understand them. We need to remind ourselves that John is not just a prophet, John is not just a pastor of these seven churches, but John is also a poet. Remember we talked about this in the intro. He uses poetic language, emotive kinds of things that we may not be comfortable with. But his audience would have said, ah, I see what he's doing there. One poetic device that John uses, and it's not just John, it's the ancients used this a lot, was repetition. Saying something again. Bringing back an old idea. Recapitulating a previously stated sentiment. Rehashing a familiar theme. Saying something again in a slightly different way for emphasis. Repetition, also known as repetition. You get it? I'm being repetitive to demonstrate what they do. You got to remember that the ancient culture was an oral culture. They didn't have copy machines. They couldn't print out their sermons. If you got a letter from John or from a scroll of Isaiah, you didn't just have your own copy. You didn't have a screen you could pull it up on and be like, yeah, the text that's so easy for us to access today was not as easy for them. So they did things intentionally to get it in your brain. Repetition was one of those. It was something that you would did, do to emphasize an important point, but also just to get the things you want to stick to stick. Here's an example. 
In Psalm 18, there's a verse that says, The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. And then again, the very next verse kind of says the same thing using different words. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. Well, why are you being so repetitive? We already heard you the first time. Why are you saying it again? For that reason, to help you remember these things. The fancy pants term for this is synonymous parallelism. If you would, humor me for just a minute, turn to somebody next to you and twist your fancy pants mustache and say, synonymous parallelism. That's a fancy thing to say. And it doesn't just show up in the Psalms. It doesn't just show up in Revelation. It shows up all over Scripture. Go to the very first page of Scripture, Genesis 1. It's the story of creation. God creates the world, Genesis 1. And then Genesis chapter 2, you would think, is like the next part of what God does. But no, no, no. Genesis 1 is the creation of the world. Chapter 2, the creation of the world, again, but told a little bit differently and from a different angle with different details. The ancients, didn't, it didn't bother them to have multiple versions of the same thing. It's kind of like how some old people, uh, I'm sorry, how some people uh, use their smartphone. They take a lot of photos of their grandkids or their kids, and then they have so many cute pictures, you'd think that they would go through and delete some and like whittle them down and say, yeah, you know what, this one's the best one, I'm going to delete the rest of them. But no, most uh, older folks I know, people who have grandkids, their phones are full of cute pictures. If they took Easter pictures, there's 40 of the same pose, and they're slightly different, but they're all so good, we got to just keep them all. That's how the ancient people gathered information. It's not like they weren't discerning. If something was wackadoo or heretical, they would, they would pitch it, and they wouldn't preserve it. But if stuff was like, oh, these are, these are good versions. Let's keep them both. That's not how our minds work today. We think, okay, we want the best version. That's how I pare down my pictures on my phone. It's like, I've already got pictures of Lucy closing her eyes and looking the wrong direction. Let's just get to the good one. That's how we preserve our histories. That's how we preserve information, is we kind of synthesize and try to get to the one that is most correct. But it didn't bother the ancients to have multiple different versions of things. You're going to get that in Revelation. Here's what I think is happening in the middle part of Revelation. You had seven seals. Next, what we're going to hear is seven trumpets. And then later on, we're going to have the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. And you might go, your, your modern-day sequential brain might go, okay, so this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and like, wh- how do they relate to each other? John the poet may very well be saying, here is an image I want you to hold on. And then without telling us, he goes back and says, here it is again told in a different way. And then here it comes a third time told from another direction with other images. That's, you can see here on the screen, that's Revelation 6 through 16. I didn't put it up there, but yeah, 6 through 16. And Revelation is only 22 chapters, so that's like half of the book is this image of judgment. So there's a lot of locusts, and there's, there's dragons, and there's fire, and there's like a third of the people dying in all of this, but we need to understand this is John telling us this is the justice of God that is coming, and then there's a celebration. We saw that last week when the seven seals were open. We're going to see that this week when the seven trumpets are blown, and then in a couple of weeks with the seven bowls. If we know that, then we can say, oh, okay, John is trying to tell us something about God and his justice and his faithfulness. Let's see if we can make sense of this. And like I said earlier, the reason we started with the story of the ten plagues is because what you're supposed to recognize when we hear Revelation 8 and 9 
is supposed to sound very, very familiar to you. There are very, simil- very striking similarities between the story of the plagues in Exodus and what you're going to hear in Revelation 8 and 9. So, with that in mind, are you guys ready for a very long and very strange text from John the Revelator? Here it comes. Revelation 8, starting in verse 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Remember what we said about a third, right? Don't, don't get lost in the math. A uh, third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. And this part makes me laugh. I'll tell you why in a second. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Maybe you don't see why that's funny. Uh, It's actually pretty ominous, like things are about to get worse. But you have all these terrible things happen, and then you get an eagle that floats by and says, oh, by the way, if you thought that was bad, things are going to get much worse, so buckle up. Like, oh, thanks a lot, guy. That's, that's nice to know. Makes me laugh anyway. And then his, uh, his prediction is proven. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, and that star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss... Smoke rose from it like the smoke of a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only torture them for five months. Ah, torture for five months. Not too bad. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. It sounds pretty awful, pretty terrible. But again, keep in mind the image of Pharaoh with his arms crossed, and his face frowning, surrounded by flies, unwilling to change. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they had something like crowns of gold. On their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates, like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, who... His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, the destroyer. The first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come, as if it couldn't get any worse. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice come from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. 
And it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and the riders that I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads in which they inflict injury. And we get a lot of detail in this vision. But watch this next part. You can get lost in the details, and you can, it can make your head spin, and you can do all the wrong math. But pay attention to this next part. Pay attention to the attitude of the people who are experiencing these horrors. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, the idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor... Did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts? Sounds a lot like Pharaoh. This sounds a lot like the story of God trying to rescue his people, trying to get Pharaoh's attention, trying to get people to change, but they still, they can decide for themselves, and they won't. They refuse to. Revelation 10 and 11, we'll get, come back to later. I want to skip over those parts for now because I want to get us to the seventh trumpet. And that's in Revelation 11 and change. So we're going to pick it up there. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, now we get back into worship again, like we got in Revelation 4 and 5 and Revelation 7. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power, you have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who who destroy the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Okay. If you read this on your own, there's a reason that people don't read Revelation. There's a reason that pastors and churches have told people when they say, what's Revelation about? Can we study it? No, 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 it's best to just leave it alone. Let's go over here to Mark uh, or Philippians or something that's a little bit more accessible. And this is the reason. Keep in mind the image of the ten plagues of Egypt. The hard-heartedness of Pharaoh and God's discontinued desire to release his people. I think that John is saying something similar here to the seven churches living under Roman oppression. There is a stubbornness. There is a refusal to repent. But God is faithful. And just like he rescued his people from Egypt, he is going to rescue you as well. The people's hearts are hardened. They stubbornly refuse to submit to the Lord. Not even amidst the pain of suffering and destruction. Uh, 
what ends up happening, the more and more destruction they see, it seems that people just get stiffer and stiffer necked. They just seem to get more unwilling to listen to God and to turn and to change. But that's not like us, right? We're the people with the marks on our forehead. We're not stubborn. Nobody's, nobody's stubborn. We got over that a long time ago, right? We're not unwilling to listen or to change our mind or to do what God wants us to do, even if it requires us to change things in our lives. It's very tempting to hear this text and to go, yeah, they're the stubborn ones. They're the ones who aren't on the side of God. And we're the ones with the marks on our forehead, so we're fine. We're safe. We're protected. Like, too bad. We're like the eagle soaring over and going, hey, it's about to get a lot worse for you. It's tempting to hold that position. But maybe a warning, maybe a, a message even of encouragement that we can hear today is, look at how stubborn people can be. Look at how how willing they are to endure suffering just so that they can hold on to their independence and their freedom and not have to bow their heads to any other king but themselves. You might not think that you're stubborn. You might be thinking of someone right now who is stubborn. You may have come here this morning and between the two or three of you be like, yeah, you're probably the stubborn one and not me. Um, and if so, don't, don't elbow anybody and don't point at anybody right now. But uh, I want to maybe give you a little quiz to see if you are stubborn or not, whether or not you think or know that you're stubborn. I found this online quiz, thank you, Internet, for uh, determining whether or not you have a stubborn streak. Question one, when making a big decision in your life, how many people do you consult to get their opinion? I'm guessing that if that number is zero or a low number, then you might be stubborn. This is what I'm doing. This is what I've decided. Second question, how often do you find yourself having debates with people that you don't know on social media? You ever done one of these? Like, here we go, I'm going to set you straight. Whether or not I have a relationship with you, I have to be right. Question three, how often do you let someone else win an argument simply because you don't want to argue anymore? Guessing if the answer is not that often, then there may be some stubbornness you need to address. And my favorite of the... <laughs> The questions is this one. Has anyone ever called you stubborn? <laughs> That's a good indication. <laughs> Your family's eating dinner and goes like, you know what? You're pretty stubborn, aren't you? <laughs> That's something you should maybe take seriously. It's funny when we talk about it like this and when we take the online quiz and we all, uh, maybe there's some stubbornness we could work on or maybe some people are more stubborn than others, but... Maybe I shouldn't be taking this so lightly. This is actually a serious thing. We see what happens when we hear these, these stories from Scripture. We see what happens to stubborn people. It's kind of tragic. Stubborn people end up getting exactly what they want in the end. They get to rule in a kingdom of one. The prayer that they offer before the Lord that says, my kingdom come and my will be done is eventually Granted by God. God says, okay, I want your prayer to be thy kingdom come, but you've got free will. I want you to love me on your own. I'm not going to force you to. God gives people the ability to decide. And whether it's metal locusts and fire and sulfur from a, a lion's mouth, whether it's that that destroys a person 
or whether it's not, whether it's something else, stubbornness against God is something that will destroy us. Uh, that's, that's a warning. That's a, a reminder for us today. The text that we looked at this morning, it starts with the prayers of the saints going up before God's throne, and then it moves toward the stubbornness of wicked people who won't say yes to Jesus. And it got me thinking about the intersection between prayer and stubbornness. Where have I, where have I heard these things put together before? A prayer, a faithful prayer, and a stubborn person. I was reminded of something Jesus said, a parable that he told in Luke 18. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said this, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And for some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's a good question for us today. Jesus asked his generation that question, and it rings out to us today. Will I find faith on the earth? And the seven churches had a lot of social pressure during their time to abandon their faith and try to just get along with your life as best you can. And the things that keep us from putting our full trust in Jesus may not be the same things that were pressuring them then, but they're still there. And the message for them is the same message for us today. Always pray and not give up. Be like the, is it stubborn widow? I think we call her the persistent widow, right? One quote that I found said that the difference between stubbornness and persistence is that persistence is about willpower while stubbornness is won't power. Again, picture Pharaoh surrounded by flies with his arms crossed. People who are suffering but still refuse to change. We don't want to be those people. We're reminded in Revelation that the faithful witnesses of the Lamb of Jesus Christ are called to be persistent in hope and in prayer and to hold fast to their faith and to declare, we will give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. Remember, that's what Revelation is all about. The enthronement, the reigning of Jesus Christ, God's Son, risen from the grave with his arms open, saying, come and follow me. And that invitation is there for all of us. I hope that we will continue to follow him. Now I want to transition into a time of prayer, like I mentioned earlier. I just want to create some space for us to spend time in silent prayer. Uh, usually someone words the prayer for everybody, and we all say, yes, amen, we agree to that. But this morning, just for the next few minutes, I'm going to put some prompts up on the screen some things, some suggestions of people you can pray for, of things you can pray for, for yourself. And I want to invite you, uh, as God's, as the church of Jesus Christ, let's like light that incense. Let's let that smoke rise up before the throne of God, knowing that he hears us and that he is powerful and able to act in our lives. So, time of prayer. Ready? Go. <laughs> 